Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to turn with me if you have a copy of God's Word to a book that you're probably, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, are going to have a really hard time finding. And that's the book of Obadiah. You want to go right in the middle to Psalms and then start working your way to the right toward the New Testament. Eventually, you're going to get to the Minor Prophets, and you're going to find this very short 21 verses in all book as we continue a series that we started many, many weeks ago. We took a little break for Easter and for another really hard subject. Now we're back on the subject of turn, focusing on 12 men, these men we call minor prophets, who repeated God's command to turn, which is really what it means to repent. And the emphasis of this series has been to try to understand a word in a different way. In a, not in a milder way so much, but, but in a way that is not quite so harsh that we hear the word repent and we, we tend to think of someone standing above us, wagging their finger at us. And instead, it, it's a little less like this and a, a little more like this. And so I've said repeatedly that we should not understand this term or this call chiefly as an angry God screaming at us, but rather as a creator and a redeemer beckoning us back home. Okay? But as anybody who's ever been a parent knows... Loud volume doesn't always equate to hatred, does it? No. In fact, many times, uh, the greatest love means the volume goes up just a little bit, along with the frustration. Sometimes this call, even though it never comes in hatred, will come at an intensely high volume. And so I just want to warn you at the outset here, this is what we're looking at this morning. That's what we're going to discover as we look at God's call to repent as it occurred through the ministry of this, the shortest of all of the prophets. Uh, so it's a really short message. It's a message that's pretty simple, but it's also, it also has a context and a background that needs to be understood in order for that message to get through. And so we're going to have to navigate multiple complexities this morning to get to the heart of this, this 2,500-year-old roughly passage of scripture to hear what God is saying to us. So what I want to ask is just bear with me for a few moments through this introduction because there's a lot of overlap between the words we're going to read in Obadiah and other accounts in the Bible that are going to help us understand Obadiah a lot better. Otherwise, you're just going to walk away from the text like some of you did in a college classroom and you're going to go, man, that guy must be really smart because I don't understand a word he said. And I don't want that for you, okay? I want you to go home knowing what the prophet has said, moreover, knowing that God has spoken. And that 2,500 years ago, he spoke a word through a, a rather obscure prophet that I hope by the time we're done this morning is going to be abundantly clear to you. So that takes us to verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. This is the initial audience. It's the nation 
of Edom. Now, this is a nation that was southeast of Israel, just a few miles. They were supposed to be an ally of God's people, Israel, but instead they sided with Israel's invading neighbors. This book is written sometime after 587 BC. So Israel, Judah has already been toppled by the Babylonians. The temple has already been destroyed. Jerusalem now lies in ruins. And uh, Edom took sides, as it, as it seems, not with Israel, but with their Babylonian conquerors and captors. And additionally, they took advantage of Israel's defeat for their own benefit, which is important for us to understand why every single time there is mention of Edom in the Bible, not just here, but anywhere in Scripture, it's always mentioned in tension with neighboring Israel every single time. And if you're a naturally curious person, you're going to go, what's that all about, right? I mean, if, if somebody said Joel, and every time they said Joel, said, oh, yeah, you know the guy that that other guy can't stand. Like, you'd wonder, like, there's a story behind that. I, I first learned, have you ever walked into a situation, either at work or uh, extended family or life, maybe you didn't know exactly what was going on, but you knew instantaneously that you had very innocently, but nonetheless very really walked into some bad history? Yeah, there's a whole th bunch of stuff upstream you had no idea about. The first time I can remember doing that in a major way was in 2005. We had just come to the Mid-Atlantic. I was trying to get used to this new area. We were living in Central Maryland, doing all kinds of ministry work all over the, the Central uh, Mid-Atlantic states and the Northeast and eventually the world, and I was excited about it. But about a month in, I mentioned the Baltimore Colts. Yeah, so you know where this is going already, and I got in trouble, like with my bosses. I'm like, we're ministry, like we're not the NFL. Why are y'all capping on me for making a comment about an NFL team? We don't talk about that up here. And what they meant was, I mean, they, they themselves were not really all that angry, but they were like, you gonna, you gonna step in something, buddy. You're gonna step in something. So don't talk about the Colts. And I wondered to myself, what was that all about? I mean, I knew they were in Indianapolis now, but that's all I knew. And I don't even like them. So, I mean, Peyton Manning's okay, but, you know, hey, you like the Colts? Meh. You know, wasn't even a dog I was willing to put into a fight. Now, I found out later on that they kind of messed over Baltimore, by the way. They moved out of town overnight, took advantage of it. Yeah, see, some of y'all, you're from there or whatever. You're like, yeah, I remember that. I'm still a little, I'm still a little raw about it too, right? Yeah, this is what happened. So there was this whole history that I was unaware of that I walked right into the middle of. And all I knew for the longest time is we don't talk about that. The tension that we're going to feel in these next few moments with Edom has a similar background. And as we widen our view for a moment, we learn that background started all the way back in Genesis chapter 25. In verse 22, there are twin brothers born to Isaac and Rebekah. And we read the following, the children struggled within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. I think every woman in her third trimester has probably asked that question, but nonetheless, this was uh, particularly acute. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. 
And then this, these two boys are born, and as this family story unfolds, we see the fulfillment of these words in the history of these two brothers. Esau, we see, disregarding his own position as the elder uh, in a moment of hunger and passion. Jacob leveraging that not only to take advantage of his own brother, but to lie to his own father, his own blind father. Who does that? So you see all this dysfunction, all of this deception, and the result is years and years of vitriol and outright hatred. By, verse, by chapter 33 of Genesis, they, they apparently have patched things up somewhat, but we see moving on beyond the narrative that the animosity that we see among their descendants continues. And the Edomites mentioned in Obadiah are the descendants of Esau. Israel are the descendants of of Jacob. You see what's happening upstream? All right, we're standing in the stream at Obadiah upstream. There's all that dysfunction. It starts with two brothers who can't stand each other. And then you got this long emotional story that eventually becomes a model for early Christian theology. We read the following in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We will come back to that in a moment, I promise. Okay, But, but why am I bringing all this up? Why, why am I bringing this up? Why am I telling you all this? Is it, because you, you're sitting there in the seat, and I know you're probably tempted, some of you at this moment, to act like some of my children do when they come to me and they ask me a question about God's Word, and then five minutes later they put their hands up and they go, Dad, I didn't want to know that much about it. Okay? I get it, but if you don't get what's going on here, if you don't see what's happening upstream, if you don't see the complexity within which this very simple prophecy is uttered, you're going to walk away missing God's word for you right here and right now in 2023. So it's important that you get all of this because it's an example of something even more complicated. Doesn't that make you feel good? Something called typology. What is typology? Well, it's a theory of interpretation that examines how the biblical characters and events in one testament relate to the other. That phenomenal 5th century Bishop Augustine reminds us that the New Testament is hidden in the old and the old is manifest in the new. Well, understanding how all that happens requires some work requires some work. And the main idea is that sometimes there's a person or an event in Scripture that isn't merely about that person or that event, but is inseparably connected to, to the wider story of Scripture. And Obadiah contains all three levels of this. You have, on the one hand, the, the plain reading of the text that Pastor Jack read to us at the outset of our time together that just refers to what's happening between Edom and Israel at this time. Then you got level two. The context for this judgment, having begun with two brothers that can't stand each other, all the way back in Genesis 25, and then all of that is connected to level three. How does God's word to Edom apply universally to every single one of us? Obadiah is going to bring all three of those together for us this morning. So whether it's two brothers in a relationship that's gone toxic, whether it's two nations acting toward one another in an unjust way, the Lord's call to repent remains, and alongside of it, the consequences of how we respond to that call are no more clear than those we read about in these prophets' words, which means they're at a high volume. They're harsh, perhaps the harshest that we're going to see in this entire series, 
It's a call to turn, but they're not words of hatred to you and me. They're not words of hatred. This prophecy for you and me, it's a cautionary tale. Because by the time these words are written, it's already too late for Edom. But if you're alive and listening to me right now at this moment, it is not too late for you. Even if you are right now at top speed on a road to destruction, it is not too late to turn. It is not too late to take an alternate route that God provides you toward restoration. But it's going to require four postures on your part and mine. And the first is this. We need to acknowledge the reality of judgment. We don't like to talk about judgment a whole lot. It makes us uncomfortable, but honestly, one of the best things we can do is, is to admit from time to time, just remember this, this universally true fact that, that judgment is a reality and that actually judgment is good. Verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. In other words, judgment is coming and there's no avoiding it. He goes on in verse 5, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. This isn't just a mere robbery. Robbers break in. You get home today. God forbid it happens. You find out somebody's busted in your house and, and taken some of your stuff. You're going to call the insurance company. You're going to get it replaced. Maybe you see a counselor about the way you personally feel. But you're going to be okay because they were just after your stuff. It's just stuff. God speaks and says, I'm not just coming for the stuff. I'm coming for you. The destruction will be total. You have no understanding, he says. You don't, even, you don't even realize what's about to happen to you because I am orchestrating history in such a way that your former allies that surround you that you think are going to be on your side are either going to retreat from you or they're going to betray you to the point that your entire national security net is going to collapse. There's going to be no defenses left for you. That's pretty harsh. It's pretty harsh. But remember what Obadiah is predicting for Edom is exactly what Edom did to Israel. All right? At the origin of this nation in Genesis 17, God said this to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will bless curse. We call this retribution theology. If you, if you do well toward my people, I will do well toward you. You, do, you don't do well toward my people, I will not do well toward you. This is just one of hundreds of examples we find in the Old Testament of God making good on his promise to ancient Israel. But the prophet's pointing to something deeper here still that results in Edom's judgment. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, in other words, you've got security, you've got some money, you've got a little bit, you think you're going to be okay, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's talking about the seed of the emotions. The Edomites had thought to themselves, you know what, it'd be fine. No price to pay for our treasury because we, uh, we are fortified. We have a, a strong military. And that brought all of that stuff they had, all those resources at their disposal, brought something out in them that God absolutely hates, pride. 
God hates pride. First Peter tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride is what brought about the fall. When our first parents sinned because they thought it wasn't enough to simply be in intimate relationship with God. They wanted to be in the position of God. The New Testament called that the, the pride of life alongside of the lust of the flesh and the, the lust of the eyes. And that same posture apparently existed within the Edomites, and it exists today in the hearts of men and women. Everywhere it exists, it is opposed by God and will inevitably result inescapably in judgment. So what's pride? Well, pride is, is what results every time we place ourselves instead of our creator at the center of the story. Okay? That, that's, that, that's why here at Covenant, we oppose nonsense like your best life now. Because it ain't about you. Rule number one, if you're going to follow Jesus, it ain't about you. It's not. And when you put yourself at the center, you make it all about us. Every one of us who's been a parent has had to, at one point in time, remind our children that they have forgotten themselves, haven't we? Yeah. Well, I just get them in and they get demanding or they get entitled or they get this or that or what. Am I, am I going to get paid for taking out the trash? Yeah. Yeah. You get, a, you get to keep that roof that I put over your head. That's what you get. Yeah. What is it? You've forgotten yourself. What is pride? Pride is a disposition you and I display when we have forgotten ourselves in the presence of God. And God hates it. And God will judge it every single time. Now, we talk a lot in the church about forgiveness and grace, and we absolutely should. It's the center point of what we believe. But the cautionary tale that Obadiah gives us in the Edomites should also remind us Life comes with consequences for bad actions, bad attitude, bad faith. Or as that theologian Tupac Shakur used to say, only God can judge me. That has a good and a bad connotation to it. Yeah, you're right. Only God. No, nobody in this room, nobody in the world who's another human being can be your ultimate judge. But God can, and Obadiah reminds us, God will. We need to acknowledge the reality of that judgment. And then secondly, we need to admit the justice of it. This isn't just a, well, I guess that's how it's going to be. It's a, this is what's coming. This is assured to come and it's right that it come. Why is God being so harsh here? Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. These two nations again emerged from two brothers and even though they've emerged into two nations now, God still looks at them and goes, I knew your daddies. And they were just like you. He still sees them as a nation coming from two brothers. And so to Edom, says, he says, you, you deserve everything that's coming to you. And it's not just because you're violent. It's because of your violent heart. Verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors 
in the day, prisoners of war, in other words, just give them over to the enemy, let them be killed, in the day of distress. You haven't just been violent to your brother. You are now taking advantage of his defeat. You brag about how superior you are. You take personal advantage from his disadvantage, and you refuse aid to the most vulnerable of your enemy. You turn them back. Now, here's what Jesus would tell us in Matthew 5 about the, the connection between the heart and, and violent action. He would say, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Well, I look at social media today and I go, man, there's a lot of judgment getting ready to be doled out. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Someone, There's somebody out there you don't like, somebody out there that doesn't like you, your pride and hatred for them combined to form behaviors like this, destruction is in your future. So here's a question for us in 2023. How do you react when your enemy suffers? What's your response to that? Man, the examples I could give. Let's start with something non-controversial like COVID vaccines. Let's start with that one. <laughs> oh, I do. I, rem I remember when they came out and there were a great number of people who were like really excited. There were others who were highly suspicious. And so as, you know, in a, in a nation with 340 million people, there will be more than one opinion, people. There just will. Uh, and we got that. We, we, I, we, I was thankful to God to have a medical team here. Thank God. I mean, think about this. 500 years ago, when, when the Protestant Reformation began, those people that were my forebears in ministry, oftentimes the guy in my position was the only guy in the whole village that could read, let alone do medical care. And other, the guy standing right here 500 years ago was the smartest guy in town. You have no idea how much I thank God that was not true three years ago. And we got the best of our, of our medical team around us, and we got, we got really good folks that were trying to teach us. I mean, we tried to provide the best information we could. We wanted the information to be accurate. We did everything we could. And, and yeah, our, among our leadership and our, our medical professionals, they advocated for this. But then I got a question. Actually, the first time it came was from BBC. British Broadcasting Company. There was a, a, a journalist in, in London that I was talking to, and she was just fascinated that we were even having this conversation in a place like Appalachia. And I said, well, contrary to popular belief, we do wear shoes here. Like, <laughs> like, we, like you need to come over here and learn my, about my people. Like, you need to learn. And, and, but it really shocked her when she said, you, th this was all off the record, by the way. You won't find any of this on the radio because the British wouldn't put it on the radio. She, she said, well, did, did, so you required it. I said, no, nope, we didn't. Oh, my gosh. Like you would have thought like you didn't. No, we don't. Why didn't you require it? I said, well, there's several reasons for that. But one of them is this is Appalachia. If you want to guarantee somebody's never going to do something, make a rule that says they have to. Okay. <laughs> So we really are trying to encourage this. This ain't the way to do it. You, you need to come across the pond and, and see my people. But I just couldn't believe it. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, it's, you know, it's a pretty invasive medical intervention. I, I think people ought to be able to make that call themselves. I, I really should. But then it went from bad to worse. And I remember being in the ER with somebody in our church 
that thank God survived, but at that moment I didn't think they were going to. Back, I mean, they, 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 let, they finally let guys like me in, but I had, to, I had to dress up like I was at ground zero of a nuclear event, you know. Walked in, prayed, walked out, some kind of national program on the radio on the way back home with somebody like this. Yeah, we should only treat the vaccinated. That's the pride of Edom talking. That's the pride. That's what, that's what Obadiah is talking about, guys. That's what he's talking about. A few weeks ago, you may remember, because it was all over the media, this horrible shooting at Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. And immediately, though Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn, there were groups that told us that the person to blame wasn't just the shooter, but anybody that owned a gun. Those people are all evil too. There were other people still that said, well, it's the transgender community. We told you those people were violent. And a third group still that said, well, it's those Christians and their repressive sexuality. They should have known this was going to happen. They had it coming. That's the pride of Edom talking. You can disagree, even strongly. You can have opinions. You can have opinions. Y'all have opinions. I've heard them. But when your neighbor suffers, you serve and you pray and you love. We do not gloat and we do not presume superiority. We do not put ourselves at the center of the story. Because if we do, according to Scripture, the only just and reasonable response from a holy God in that moment is our own destruction. You got to watch that Edomite spirit creeping up in your own soul. I know what I know. Yeah, maybe not so much. God will use our destruction to make things right. And here's the third thing. He does this everywhere, which is why we're called here not just to acknowledge the reality of it or to admit the justice of it, but to recognize the universality of judgment. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. The reason these things are true for Edom is because they're, they're universally true. They're true for you. They're true for me. 2,500 years later, we've talked about this reference to the day of the Lord many times before in the prophets. Nearly always, uh, every time we read it, it encompasses judgment day. And it's a reflection of the fact that, that God's judgment on people and nations in this age is a mere precursor to a judgment in the age to come. So the singular phrase, day of the Lord, is an indicator to anybody reading this prophecy that Obadiah is not just talking about the Edomites. He's talking about every man and woman who ever has or ever will live. The issues God speaks of here through his prophet are the same standards by which the entire world is one day going to be judged. And this is where the story of Jacob and Esau, all the way back in Genesis 25, having emerged as the story of two nations warring against each other points to an ultimate. This is the level three, spiritual reality for all of us. At the end of the age, there are two groups of people, and there are only two groups of people, the saved and the lost, the chosen and the reprobate, the changed and the recalcitrant, born again and those only born of the flesh. And God's posture toward both is made plain in his word. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. I told you we'd get back to that one. Does that disturb you? Does it bother you that God actually said he hated somebody? 
Don't recoil too quickly until you, you consider this story again. There was a, uh, a lady who was one of the parishioners in Charles Haddon Spurgeon's congregation, great British Baptist preacher of the 19th century, and she approached him very disturbed by this text, and he admitted that it disturbed him as well. And she remarked how thankful she was to hear that because for, for it just it, as much as she tried, she simply could not get her head or her heart around the idea that God would have hated Esau. And Spurgeon responded by saying, Madam, I have no struggle with God hating Esau. My struggle is how God could have loved Jacob. How, how does that happen? You remember the story? But, but he does, doesn't he? See, that's the good news of the gospel. We don't start, you're putting yourself back at the center. How could God hate? How could God, have you met you? You met me? Like, really, the real me? Like, how could God, you, do you see what we've done to jack up this whole planet and each other? The amazing thing is that God loves, not that he hates, and that's the great news. That's the light breaking through all the darkness that God didn't create that darkness. You and me, we all jacked this place up. God's coming through with light. Jacob, I love. That's a message of hope. We don't have to face the same end that the Edomites did. But we do have to do something. We have to take God at his word to escape judgment. Verse 20, the exiles... Of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Look at that last phrase. The kingdom shall be the Lord. That's not just true in this moment and time. That's not just true for Israel in this whole struggle with Jacob and Esau. That is true eschatologically. In your future and mine, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the wider story. That's level three. Not contained in Obadiah's prophecy, but alluded to in these verses describing Israel's restoration. The reality is while Edom benefited from the Babylonian invasion, God himself was allowing that Babylonian invasion of his own people to punish them for their sins. Why? Because they're his people. They're his people. And he loves them. And so he's going to bring them back. And that message points to a greater spiritual truth to all of us. If we belong to him, even in our punishment for sin, it's merely an instrument for God to form and shape us into who he desires so that we can be restored. And the message of Obadiah to us, to you and me, 2,500 years later, is this. Our story, your story, does not have to end like the story of the Edomites. It can end like the story of Israel. But you got to remember, this is a cautionary tale. That's its purpose in the canon for you and for me. By this time, time it's, by the time it's written, Edom, Edom's fate is sealed. It's done. Proverbs 29.1 tells us the following. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Scripture says there is a point of no return coming. There's a point beyond which that's it. That's it. 
You know, one of the things that always intrigues me is any true story surrounding Mount Everest. I'm fascinated by it. I really am. Um, and today, it's actually easier to climb that mountain than it's ever been. Now, I'm probably still not going to qualify. Maybe you won't either. Some of you probably will, though. Some of you guys, I talk to you all the time. You're always hiking here, kayaking there. Last time I got into a kayak, my wife laughed hilariously at me. I'm not even going to give you the details on that. But I, yes, I ended up in the water. My center of gravity has shifted over these last 51 years. But, but some of y'all, maybe this is in your future. And, and, and if you got, now you got to have the, the athletic ability. You got to have the level of health. You also have to have the means. It costs about $80,000. Yeah, I don't have that either. Um, but if you do, they will, for that cost, not only take you up that mountain, they'll spend two months training you on how to do it and how to use the oxygen and all the stuff about how to get from the, you know, from base camp all the way up to the, to the tip of Everest. And then, and then when you start that trip, you're going to reckon, man, there's stuff there that wasn't there in the 1930s when they started climbing this bad boy. There's, there's steps. There's ropes to hang on to. There's stuff to clip your carabiner onto so that you don't like, like it's easier than it's ever been. But, but after all of these decades, there's still one thing on Everest they cannot control, the weather. And so for that reason, 2 p.m. is turnaround time on Everest. And it's a hard line, hard line. You get to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, not 2.01, not 2.05, 2 o'clock. And you, you maybe can see the summit, but you're not there yet. Too bad. You're not going to see the summit. You turn around, you come back down for your own safety. Because it's after 2 p.m. where the greatest threat of the most powerful winds any of us have ever experienced. They whip across the top of that mountain. And if you don't believe it, here's a story that should sober you up. The last time someone disregarded that order was in 1998. There was a guy named Doug Hansen who took seven people with him. And at 2 o'clock, they hadn't yet reached the summit. And they decided they'll, they'll keep going. He looked at his weather forecast. Because you can always trust what the weathermen tell you, right? He saw that the skies were clear. Everything looks fine. And so they, they kept going. At 4 p.m., they were still on the mountain when a howling storm raged across that peak and eight people died on Everest that day. And the problem was this, above, among many other things, neither Doug Hansen nor those other seven people with him were paying attention to the bodies. See, for decades and decades, people have been dying on Everest. And here's the ugly truth about dying on Everest. There's, you, you, if you die there, you're preserved there. There's no way, especially at certain heights, to get your remains off of that mountain. Now, I get, the good news is you, those freezing temperatures, well, they're better than formaldehyde, I guess, in terms of preserving you because there's all these decades later, you can still see them right there. Some of them, with their, you, you can even still tell the color's been washed out of their shirts, but their shirts are on. And you, you can see them, but, it, but it's dead bodies right there for everybody to see. And apparently... The people that die on Everest for not turning around soon enough miss that. They don't pay attention to it. Because, if you, again, if you die on Everest, you, you, Jesus is literally going to come back before your body gets removed 
from that place. So as you climb, you're passing an array of frozen human remains from people who didn't make it. And those bodies are warning to you as you climb. Don't be so full of pride that two o'clock comes and you don't have the good sense to turn around and come back home. That's the message of Obadiah. And the Edomites are that array of bodies. The one who continues in stubbornness, who hardens his neck after being warned repeatedly, will be broken beyond healing. But Edom's future does not have to be yours. And so a loving God sends a loud, obnoxious, strong little prophet to say to you and to say to me, turn and come to me. And rather than destruction, you can experience restoration. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you warn us of the things in this life that are damaging to us. Lord, we, we ask you to, to bring conviction to hearts today, to people whose souls are recalcitrant and stubborn. Father, break it with this warning and then heal it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, when you spoke about anger and its connection to a, a murderous heart, we also know that that's something you died for. And so as we stand here this morning, we do so with great confidence that you can redeem. And so, Father, I ask you to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.